Hi, I'm Evan Windham from the Bullock Texas State History Museum in Austin. Welcome to the second installment in our podcast, a survey of my journey discovering the remarkable history of the legendary guitarist Stevie Ray Vaughan. In the first episode, I talked with Double Trouble, drummer Chris Layton and bassist Tommy Shannon, about their recollections of hearing Stevie Ray Vaughan play for the very first time and about the formation of the band. I spent hours talking with them about the length and breadth of their experience knowing and playing with Stevie, and a couple of points kept coming up. The first one surprised me. I'd been thinking of the band strictly as a blues act, but Chris and Tommy emphasized time and again that the band's sound was heavily influenced by musical forms outside of the more traditional notion of the blues, with influences ranging across rock and roll, funk, soul, and R&B. They melted down the sounds they liked in a crucible of raw talent and musical rapport to forge a unique sound all their own, a sound that was embraced all over the world. The second common theme was a sense of place. The entire band looked to Texas musicians and their own Texas roots as an important and defining factor in their identity, as well as their music. All of this pointed me in the direction of more research and more interviews with Blues scholars, music journalists, and others. And in this second episode, I'll share what I learned in a condensed fashion, of course. After all, you can earn an advanced degree in just the history of Texas music. So first up, a closer look at Stevie's background, starting with his earliest exposure to music. So there was a lot of music around, and plus we were in Dallas, and it was, you know, it was really a lot of music everywhere. That's Jimmy Vaughn, four-time Grammy winner, blues guitarist extraordinaire, founding member of the Fabulous Thunderbirds, and Stevie's older brother. It was more than, more than now. It was everywhere. I mean, they had, they had the, uh, the Sportatorium, and they had all those TV shows on on Saturday on the Channel 11 local and shows from Nashville, so they had a lot of country and western. Now, my uncles on both sides of the family play guitar, but they were in like western swing bands, and, uh, and uh, they like Merle Travis and uh, Bob Wills and, and things like that. And my, my father liked music, and my mother liked music, and they both, they danced a lot. They would go dancing. In every article I've read or interview I've watched, Stevie always credits his brother with his start. And a quote from Stevie in a 1984 Guitar World magazine makes me laugh. He recalls Jimmy leaving his guitars around the house and telling his little brother not to touch him. And Stevie admits, quote, that's basically how I got started, unquote. Never tell a little brother what he can't do unless you want him to do it. What happened was, was I brought a guitar home and blues records and had this notion that I was going to be a blues guitar player. We had the same bedroom, twin beds, and a, a little record player. He watched me learn, and then I'd put the guitar down and, and go somewhere or do something, and he would pick it up. But Stevie didn't have to sneak around behind Jimmy's back for long. 
Jimmy gifted him one of his first guitars, a 1954 Fender Broadcaster with the name Jimbo scratched into the back of the guitar's body. Its finish is dented and worn away from long hours of use, and it's fun imagining a young Stevie picking away at the strings. By the way, that model and vintage of guitar sells today for around $50,000, and that's without any kind of connection to a legend like Stevie Ray Vaughan. In those early years, Stevie had his ears wide open to music from other genres. He and Chris Layton would later bond over their shared affection for music of all types, and after sessions perusing their record collections, Chris and Stevie found that they had many similar interests, including Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Wonder, Motown. Years later, Chris heard that Stevie had made an interesting comment when he had heard Chris jamming along to a Donny Hathaway album. Apparently he was here listening to me play, and he asked Joseph Blatt, his bandmate, my roommate, he said, does he know anything about me ever played blues? And he went, no, he, he hasn't. He went, and Stevie told Joe, he goes, that's good. And so it was kind of an interesting comment to make. Chris's earliest exposure to music was distinct in his mind. He remembers hearing the Beatles and Elvis Presley. But then one day, at the age of six, he was running through the living room when Chubby Checkers' The Twist came on the radio. One day, I was passing through the living room when The Twist by Chubby Checker came on the radio. I kind of stopped. It was the intro to the song, and I kind of got this chill, and my hair stood up. Chris ran out to the garden and picked some branches, using them to beat on everything he could. And that's how his parents found him, with sticks made from a highly poisonous oleander bush in his hands. My dad came in. He goes, son, go throw those away. Go wash your hands and come back here when you're done. I thought, oh, God, now what's going to happen? You know, I'm in trouble for... Anyway, I came back and I sat down, and he came from this closet that was always locked, and he brought a pair of brushes. You know, they're really used in mostly in jazz work, but in quiet music. Um, and he had this stack of all these 78s, which were Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Glenn Miller, Harry James Orchestra. Um, and he started playing them. He put them on. He started playing along with them. And I went, wow, you know, Dad. And he was like, you know, Dad knows how to do this stuff. And so all this stuff kind of came together like that, and I went, you know... I want to play drums. Chris joined the school band, and the rest is history. I asked him if he could identify the key musical influences throughout his life. I'm the biggest fan of music that's come from black culture. That's the the truest thing I could say. And I go back, I go, yeah, you know, I heard music and I liked it, but when I heard Chubby Checker, there was something about that that just hit me. I don't know, I have no, can't tell you why. I think there's a real answer to that other than I could connect the dots in that way. Um, you know, as time has gone on, I've always been a fan of jazz, you know, particular persuasions of it. Um, you know, R&B, soul, um, blues, so on and so forth. They've all really been rooted in the uh, culture of black America. Tommy Shannon didn't grow up around the blues. I lived in a small hick town uh, upstate Texas. Where I lived, they didn't have blues. His early influences were more in the vein of rock and roll. When I first started out, uh, The Ventures, uh, Beach Boys, Roy Orbison, especially The Beatles. 
So we have these three guys from Texas who, by various means, come to understand and appreciate various styles of music, in particular the blues. My research revealed some defining features of the Texas blues. First of all, it has more obvious jazz influences than other blues styles. In other words, the Texas blues tends to swing, and the syncopated rhythms more often associated with jazz music. And an equally important element is an emphasis on lead guitar parts. So with those two elements in mind, I enlisted the help of some experts to provide some context that would help me understand what all that means. It's all connected. I mean, it all comes from the same deep traditions of African and African-American music. Dr. Gary Hartman is director of the Center for Texas Music at Texas State University in San Marcos. He theorizes that the Texas blues has been influenced by the unique balance of ethnic diversity found throughout the state and results from a blending of cultural traditions in the early part of the 20th century. There are many different theories on just the origins of the blues in the first place, and then there are different theories about whether blues is different from region to region or state to state or anything like that. But I do think in Texas that the blues took on a slightly different flavor, and that mainly, well, it had to do with things like there was not as heavy a concentration of African-Americans in Texas as there was in the rest of the South. Texas had black slaves, of course, but also had a large Hispanic population. Texas had uh, large influxes of Irish and German and Czech and all these other different, of course, Anglo Uh, all these other ethnic groups that came in. And one other unique group that influenced Texas uh, African-Americans were the French-speaking black Creoles living next door in Louisiana. They were the descendants of the slaves of French colonists. And a lot of those French-speaking black Creoles moved into Texas uh, mostly during the early 1900s. They sort of set, kept separate communities, but they were hearing each other's music, hearing each other's um, languages, and, uh, and there was some mixing and mingling that goes on there. So Texas was a meeting place for cultures to mix and influence one another, musically and otherwise. And Dr. Hartman's perspective reminded me of something Jimmy Vaughn had said about the liberal crossing over between musical genres he experienced in the 60s more than 50 years after the Texas brand of freewheeling musical blending got started along the coastal regions. This is not real popular belief. You don't hear people talking about it. But in the 60s, a lot of the country guys and the blues guys were were really playing a lot of the same kind of stuff. Uh, You know, like uh, one of B.B. King's hit was The Nightlife. That was a Willie Nelson song. When I was searching for knowledgeable folks to talk to, Jonek Potoski's name came up early and often. Jonek's been writing about Texas and its music and culture for more than 40 years, and he helped shine more light on the Texas blues as it pertains to Stevie's style of playing. In particular, he pointed out an interesting coincidence regarding the Dallas suburb of Oak Cliff, where Stevie and Jimmy were raised. The Texas blues, I mean, basically, Stevie completed the circle because he grew up in Oak Cliff, as did Jimmy. 
And the father of electric guitar, period, is Charlie Christian. Used to ramble around Oak Cliff. And then the father of modern electric blues guitar really was the biggest thing predating rock and roll is T-Bone Walker from Oak Cliff. So, you know, all they are is of a kind in that I re- you listen to Charlie Christian and T-Bone Walker, and then you can listen to Stevie Vaughan, and there is a direct connection that you can pick up. It's in tone, and it's really in more of the, uh, swinging, being able to swing. Texas blues swings. Uh, it, it's not just, you know, mechanical or, or uh, beat on the beat. It swings, and it always has one. T-Bone Walker and Bob Wills are only you know, this far apart because Western Swing and, and Black Blue Swing are, are almost the same animal in Texas. So what Stevie's sound is basically connects back to that. Yeah, you can hear Albert King in it. And you can hear some Freddie King. You can hear a lot of different players. Uh, Larry Davis, the original Texas Flood guy. But most of all, I'll hear T-Bone in them. And there's, you know, even though they were, what, 50 years apart, uh, direct connection and that has everything to do with coming up in Oak Cliff I think Joe Nick thinks that the uniqueness of Texas culture extends far beyond a single genre of music he surmises that this is owed as much to the state's isolation from other American cultural centers as it does to the mixing of different races and classes of people when I moved here to write the whole idea was I didn't go to New York or LA but I thought, you know, right as if Texas is, you know, a whole other country. It's a, its own place. And there's a history here. And when you look at the music, we're distant enough from L.A., Nashville, and New York to be provincial, to be our own people. And that means we've created our own music. And as much as generica has in, in, intruded on Texas, and so much of Texas is generic today, I think music, you can still ferret that out, that we sound like no one else. No one sounds like us, and everybody else wants to sound like us. And, you know, we're still doing it. The dance halls are still going on. People are still playing Western Swing. We're still playing blues. They're still playing uh, hillbilly and country. And it's all still coming out. Sound like it's, it's rooted to the past, but it's new and completely different. And that just doesn't happen anywhere else. I don't think I'm being jingoistic when I say it either. It's or, or I'm not trying to be a Yahoo. It's not bragging. It's just true. As I spoke with Jimmy, Chris, and Tommy, I started to create a playlist of songs by musicians they'd mentioned. And by the time I'd finished, it contained a solid foundation of Texas bluesmen like Lightning Hopkins. Albert Collins, Freddie King, T-Bone Walker, along with a mixture of other artists from Stevie Wonder to Jimi Hendrix. And when I listened, I could begin to hear licks and patterns that were embedded and revealed in Stevie's playing. The diversity in Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble's sound was a culmination of their unique backgrounds and influences. As Joe Nick claims, Stevie's exposure to the blues in Oak Cliff may well have laid the foundation for his tastes and his style of playing, 
But it was the atmosphere and latent potential of the Austin music scene in the late 60s and early 70s that ultimately shaped Stevie and the band. Join me next time as we explore a unique moment in time when Austin's musical talent pool and hippie-infused community spirit combined with the dedication of a guy named Clifford Antone, who would create the environment in which local musicians learned their craft from previous generations of blues masters. Pride and Joy, the Texas Blues of Stevie Ray Vaughan was created by the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles and guest curated by Texas Blues Hero and Stevie Ray's older brother, Jimmy Vaughn. The exhibition runs through July 23, 2017. This podcast is a production of the Bullock Texas State History Museum. Learn more at thestoryoftexas.com. Texas.com.